Good evening. This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with what hope is there for the future. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, with so much going wrong in our society, what hope is there for the future? Well, indeed, there is a lot of things going wrong in society. Um, when church synods are even debating what constitutes marriage and whether Satan or hell exists, we're in trouble. And when unregenerate perverts can be ordained as ministers of the gospel, and when professors can be fired from universities for stating the obvious that biologically there are only two genders, uh, then we are in trouble. But evil will slay the wicked. Humanism is self-destructive. And Many Christians there are neutralized and very few actually fear God and many are paralyzed by fear of the future and a fear of man. But the majority seem to have succumbed to a very negative and defeatist view of the future. And we could say paralyzed by pessimism, these passive pew warmers are praying for the rapture to rescue them out of their responsibilities. Yet if we were to rightly divide the word of truth and correctly understand the signs of the times, we would return to the fight of faith with renewed vigor and with a revitalized vision because God is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. He is all-powerful. God is sovereign over the face of men. He is not predestined defeat for his people. The ultimate victory of the kingdom of God is inevitable. Christians are not doomed to defeat. We are called to conquest, as the Psalms make clear. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families and nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations." It should actually be obvious that the enemies of God are destined for defeat. Humanism is a self-destructive ideology. Psalm 34 verse 21 says, Evil will slay the wicked. Think of those who believe in the lie of safe sex, those who sow sex education and who promote promiscuity. What you sow is what you reap. They will reap the inevitable consequences of sexually transmitted diseases, gonorrhea, herpes, AIDS, and a host of other consequences of permissiveness. So those who believe the lie of safe sex are going to be suffering the consequences. And those who worship the idol of chance by squandering the earnings and gambling will end up as bankrupt as those who engage in unworkable wastage of welfare and socialism. And then think of evolution. By promoting the theory of evolutionism, humanists are promoting a meaningless existence in a chance universe. You came from nothing. You're going nowhere. Life is meaningless. And in education, by removing the Bible from the schools and by purging all moral values from education, humanist schools are inevitably ending up with a functionally illiterate, incompetent, incapable, immoral generation. By abandoning the enforcement of discipline of children, humanists are actually making rods for their own backs, as those children will grow up into rebellious, lawless, and selfish adults. And when the humanists advocate alternative lifestyles and they promote homosexuality, lesbianism, transsexuality, bisexuality, they're undermining the essential foundations of society. The family is the basic building block of society. And by campaigning for abortion, the pro-choices are destroying their own descendants. They're aborting their own futures. So in short, atheism offers no God, no future, no hope. But obedience to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will result in the joy of sins forgiven and peace of heart and mind, and a restored relationship of love with God as our Father. Jesus Christ gives us people spiritual life now, eternal life after death, and abundant life always. The future belongs actually to the people of God. Those who live clean and moral lives, those who remain faithful to their marriage partner, they will have the best chance of surviving the AIDS plague. And those who work hard and who save wisely, those who spend their money carefully, 
will be blessed with financial security. Biblical free enterprise produces wealth and rewards hard work and ingenuity. And those who invest their lives in bringing up God-fearing children, ensuring that they receive Bible-based education, they will build the future. So as Christians, we need to believe in tomorrow. Because we believe in the God who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, He controls the future. He answers the prayers of His people. And so, yes, I do believe that we have to have hope for the future. Now, how have Marxists infiltrated and undermined so much in our churches and culture? Shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, uh, Lenin got some of his greatest thinkers together and they tried to work out how is it that what has succeeded in Russia has failed in the rest of the West and the rest of Europe. And they tried to work out how can we defeat the West. And Antonio Gramsci, the head of the Communist Party in Italy, came up with the conclusion to destroy Christianity in the West, we first need to destroy to introduce communism in the West, we first need to destroy Christianity in the West because the West is too Christian. Communism uh, got lucky in, the so in Russia with the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik Revolution, but we're not going to get the same correlation of forces again. That's a very unique opportunity that brought down the Romanov dynasty and brought in communism into the Soviet Union. In the West, we're going to have to destroy Christianity. We're going to have to Marxize the inner man. And he said, to Marxize the inner man, we need to get people to look at all problems no longer in terms of what the Bible says or what God teaches or what Jesus taught, but in terms of secular humanism. So we need to turn the, non -Christ, the, the Christian mind into a non-Christian mind and then the following generation turn to an anti-Christian mind. He said this will take at least two generations, but we need to infiltrate the five culture-carrying institutions of the West. And these pillars, the culture-shaping, culture-transforming institutions of the West, he identified as education, entertainment, news media, religious institutions, and then political institutions. And the way Antonio Gramsci put it, he said we need to be cultural termites. We need to eat out the heart of the Christian institutions of the West. So to infiltrate education, entertainment, and like a termite will eat the insides of the wooden pillars and crossbeams, you can put as much whitewash as you like over the building, but sometime the rotten insides is going to collapse and it doesn't matter how many coats of paint there's on outside, the whole structure will collapse. So he said, we need to be cultural termites. And he spoke of cultural terrorism and the need for cultural hegemony. And so um, this um, was part of the Frankfurt School of Marxism, which included people like Professor Herbert Marcuse of Sorbonne University, who said we need to use foul language uh, in plays and arts and in music and uh, ultimately, of course, the cinema as that grew, uh, so that we get people to popularize uh, vulgarity and obscenity and profanity. And Herbert McHugh says we must use swear words like verbal grenades against the bourgeois. And along with Antonio Gramsci's cultural Marxism, as he called it, okay, we may not win with economic Marxism in the West, but we'll win with cultural Marxism. And they identified Hollywood as a new beginning this early 1920s as a potential to replace the churches. The cinemas must replace the churches. Secular humanism will replace Christian spirituality. And so their goal was very, very clearly, we've got to infiltrate the schools and the colleges and the cinemas to replace the churches. And so uh, what they saw was the need to 
subvert educational institutions with evolutionism and situation ethics and sex education, values clarification, radical agenda ideology, critical race theory more recently, hate-mongering of different sorts, and of course the entertainment industry need to be subverted to glamorize evil, to popularize profanity, to celebrate ugliness, and to present non-Christian heroes and heroines. Old gods must be dethroned, cancel culture, uh, to make place for the new gods of Marxism, the new man. And uh, the news media was also important to use a selective focus and to continually uh, focus on scandals in a church, to continually break down people's confidence and establish truths, whether it's whether it's promoting billions of years instead of six days of creation, uh, whether it is promoting um, uh, the uh, classless world society, um, anti-capitalism, um, anti-patriarchy against the family. Um, Herbert Marcuse saw vulgarity as being important and celebrating ugliness, but uh, Antonio Gramsci pointed out the importance of breaking down the father. If you want to destroy Christianity, must destroy the family family. The family is the basic building block of Christianity. And to destroy the family you must attack the father. So they declared war on what they called patriarchy where the father is the provider, the protector and uh, the leader of the family. And so they also saw the news media as important to not give people news as much as views and to interpret everything from a secular humanist point of view in order to break down Christianity. And I think you see this particularly in cancel culture. And of course this resulted in many religious institutions getting liberalized, ecumenicized, and syncretized to harmonize with the New Age. And already in the 1920s, uh, the Marxists saw the need to infiltrate the theological seminaries and to turn them into theological cemeteries, and of course to promote higher critical learning, to criticize and question everything, to demythologize the Bible, to demystify God, to take away the miracles from Jesus, take away Jesus being the uh, divinity, you know, the myth of God incarnate, all that sort of thing. And of course, ultimately, to take over political institutions. And one of the key things for taking over political institutions they saw was we need to increase taxes to such an extent that we force the mother out of the household into the workplace so that the mothers need to earn more money to pay more taxes so that we can have the children then being brought up by the state. Also, mothers working in a workplace are going to have less children. And uh, that, of course, helped because they're wanting to replace the European Christians with people from third world who are easier to manipulate and to vote or, or to, to um, get by their votes that they've got to vote for your party because they're going to get free things and all of that. Replacement theology. Basically, you want to get rid of the Western Christian conservatives and replace them with others. So bring down their population dramatically through, of course, abortion when that became scientifically possible, sterilization, and of course, promoting LGBTQ, transgenderism, sterilizing people, castrating mastectomies, uh, gender firming care, as they call it, but basically it's another way of sterilizing. And at the same time, while you've got the people in the West being overtaxed, you're going to bring in lots of welfare junkies who will live off that money welfare. And to bring in people from areas where they don't have a heritage of faith and freedom and reformation and give me liberty or give me death and all this horrible Christian business of no taxation without representation and so on. Uh, they want to bring in people who are just going to obey the government and vote the way they're told and all that sort of thing. So that was important. And so the political institutions started to fall into their hands, especially when they started to give uh, salaries for people who used to do their work um, voluntarily. So when I grew up, a member of parliament was not paid. 
and neither was a town councillor. They had to donate their time. They had to really be successful in society. Maybe they were even retired because they had to donate their time to the community because it wasn't a paid position to be a member of Parliament. But now that they make it um, a get-rich-quick scheme, they can attract all kinds of people into politics and you can get the votes for them because you're buying votes with, we'll give free things to those of you who vote for us. And so, well, of course, there's lots of people who'd never invested in the society, didn't sacrifice to build the buildings, the roads, the bridges. Well, they're going to come in and you offer them free things if they vote for your party. How easy is that? So you can quickly hijack a political institution. You've heard the saying, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for the day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Well, another version of this is, if you promise a man someone else's fish, he'll vote for you for a lifetime. And so that's, I think, what uh, so many of like the Everything for Free Party and America, the Democrats, they work on that way. You know, illegal aliens are going to be your voters of tomorrow and so on. So that's all part of how they've hijacked uh, so much of society. Hmm. What could have been done to prevent this disastrous hijacking of culture and civilization, the neutralizing of Christians? Well, if the church had just done its job, I mean, first of all, understand the times, know what God's people should do, rightly divide the word of truth. This disastrous hijacking of our culture has been enabled by prayerlessness, by neglect of the Bible, by gullibility, by naivety, and by ignorance of history. All of these have combined to enable the pagans to entice an entire civilization into self-destructive suicidal chaos. The enemy has used the time-proven tactics of corrupt and conquer, and confuse, divide, and conquer. And what has happened is we've been distracted from fulfilling the Great Commission and diverted from obeying the cultural mandate. And through guilt manipulation and rewriting of history and distortion of reality, Christians have been overwhelmed, undermined, and neutralized by fake education, fake news, uh, by the cultural terrorism of these uh, cultural Marxists who have come in and undermined and neutralized education, entertainment, news media. And so the churches have gotten to the point of being so distracted. You can go to some churches and find them preaching anything but the Bible. Um, I had a, a experience of going to a Christmas um, carols, um, carols and 11 lessons of Scripture, and uh, the Scriptures were great. The carols were, of course, great. I mean, some of the finest theology. But the pastor then stood up and he gave a sermon which was so distorted. I mean, he started out by, by saying, um, just as uh, Jesus was uh, born in a stable um, in, uh, in poverty, so we need to be cared, care for the poor. And just as um, he and his um, parents had to flee into Egypt as refugees to escape um, the murders of King Herod, so we need to be concerned for foreigners and exiles today. And you'd think, well, you know, okay, he's got a bit of a point there. So I knew where he was going with this, I thought. I thought the next thing he's going to say is, and just as King Herod tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, we need to be concerned to protect babies from the Holocaust of abortion today. But he didn't go that way. He then went off to saying, so Nelson Mandela was born uh, in South Africa in, in uh, Kunu in, in Eastern Cape and Transkei, and uh, uh, he started to equate Jesus with, with Mandela. In fact, more to the point, it was more like Jesus was a stepping stone to exalt Mandela. And so afterwards, I went to speak to him when everyone had moved away and could speak to the pastor alone. And I uh, mentioned this, I said, I so expected you to go on to 
um, apply this, you know, you spoke about exiles and the poor, but refugees, but what about a baby's being targeted by abortion? And he said, I missed that. And I said, yes, you did. And then you went on to promote the man who legalized abortion in this country, to promote the very man who on the 1st of February 1997 legalized the killing of babies uh, through abortion, abortion on demand, termination of pregnancy act. And I said, um, I think it's a disgrace that you used a Christmas carol service to turn to a Mandela mass to honor a secular humanist who was not known for his Christian beliefs and in fact denied that he was a Christian and turned out to be a consistent Marxist, but he's a man who legalized abortion in this country. Not only did you not speak up for the pre-born babies, but you promoted the one who actually legalized the killing of them. And he said, I'm sorry to have disappointed you. I said, oh, well, don't worry about my opinion. My opinion's irrelevant. What you should be concerned about is what God's opinion is. As a minister of the gospel, you have betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ. You have committed blasphemy and you have um, hijacked what should have been a Christmas carol service into promoting a political agenda for someone who is not a friend of the gospel. And you can imagine that conversation did not go very well. Uh, the man was uh, quite angry. In fact, his wife uh, suddenly jumped in. The conversation started screaming at me. I don't see any grace in you. I don't see any joy in you. Um, how can you be so judgmental, you hypocrite? And so she started to climb into me and uh, um, I saw my wife was heading off uh, to the car, uh, didn't want to get involved in this sort of thing. Um, she knew that I was going to take this minister down with um, all of the Mandela political nonsense that he had given in the, his so-called sermon. <clears throat> but anyway, that just shows you uh, where we've gone. I believe the problem is too many in the church have been distracted and, and guilt manipulated and through ignorance of history and distortion of reality from the news media and the entertainment industry, all too many Christians have been overwhelmed, undermined and neutralized. Why should we then as Christians have hope for the future? Because God is sovereign and God is all-powerful. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There is power in prayer, or should I say there's power in God's answers to our prayers. Our prayers are probably very weak, but God's answers are super powerful. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God is chastening his people. He is purging us and preparing us to make us more prayerful and more powerful in this service. We need to understand the times and we need to rightly divide the word of truth. But inevitably, humanist society will collapse. It is self-destructive. What a man sows, that shall he reap. The AIDS plague and the sexually transmitted diseases will reap a bitter harvest of death for the millions who sow in the flesh. And Zimbabwe is a classic example of the economic suicide and social self-destruction that the humanist societies bring upon themselves. So, there's no doubt God is sovereign over the affairs of men. God is not predestined to feed for his people. The ultimate victory of the kingdom of God is inevitable. As Christians, we're not called to defeat. We are called to conquest. Does the Bible give us reason to have hope in the future? It certainly does. And some people may be surprised because many think, but doesn't the Bible just predict everything's going to get worse and worse and Antichrist is going to destroy it all? And, uh, you know, it's like I've heard people say, why rearrange deck chairs in the Titanic? Why? put up wallpaper in a burning building and you know everything's going down all you can do is snatch a few souls from the fire but the whole world's going to get burned up and everything's going to get destroyed by antichrist anyway well that's quite a discouragement to building schools hospitals churches or anything of long-term value you know why would you get busy building christian universities if you don't believe in the future if you think the world's coming to an end in a few months you're not going to go and learn a foreign language 
and translate the Bible, which is about a 14-year project, into a language in Papua New Guinea or something, are you? So, I think that what we've got is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Many people see no hope for the future, and then they withdraw from society and they withdraw from a long-term planning, and then things get worse. And they can say, you see, I told you things are going to get worse, but that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, uh, we as Christians need to have hope for the future. Just think of these great uh, principles in the scripture. So, in Psalm 2, uh, the Messianic Psalm, God says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You shall dash them in pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Psalm 22, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families and nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. That's another messianic psalm. As Psalm 72, in his days, in the Messiah's days, the righteous will flourish. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. His enemies will lick the dust. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. So in these and so many other Psalms, it is made clear the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ will be fulfilled. All the families and nations will bow down before Christ. He will rule the nations. And because of these scriptural prophecies, we can have every confidence that the Great Commission will be fulfilled. All kings will bow down to Christ. All nations will serve him. We're not working at uncertainty. We're not afraid for the result. God's cause will triumph. Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, that's just one of many um, verses pounded out in Handel's Messiah, one of the greatest musical presentations. And, you know, and um, all of these great verses pounded out there. Our duty is, is clear when we see these promises that God is sovereign. He raises up and he brings down kings and he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. We can praise God for the power of his word, the Bible, and for the power of his mighty answers to prayer. Faced as we are by so much anti-Christian hostility, what is our Christian duty? Our duty is clear. First of all, we commanded to pray. 1 Timothy 2, I urge then, first of all, that prayers, requests, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We must repent. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So, we are commanded to pray, to repent, to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek God's face, and to turn from our wicked ways, and to expose evil. Ephesians 5 verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. That's in Ephesians 5.11. And we to do something practical. Nehemiah 2.17 says, see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls, and we will no longer be in disgrace. We should rebuild the walls and we should seek justice. Isaiah 1.16 says, Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. And we're to select God-fearing leaders. This is an election year in South Africa and America. Um, Exodus 18 verse 21 says, But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials. Well, think how many people that disqualifies. S capable Men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, 
They're the ones who to be appointed as officials. So that's our duty, to pray, to repent, to expose evil, to rebuild the walls, to seek justice, and to select God-fearing leaders. How do you think we can turn the tide of anti-Christian paganism and prejudice, Dr. Ammon? Well, that's a good term, turning the tide, because um, if you think of the Dutch who built dikes to keep out the ocean tides, and it's amazing to be in Holland where the people say, God created the world, but the Dutch built Holland. And it's true, they've they've literally um, built their land, I suppose being sandwiched between the French on one side and the Germans on the other, decide we'd rather take on the sea. And so they have fought the sea and they've extended their land by reclaiming land. Much of the Netherlands is actually under under sea level. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing to be driving there. Sometimes you look up and think, there's the ocean above you. And the dikes are keeping uh, the ocean uh, out and what an amazing country the Netherlands is. But perhaps you've heard the story of the little Dutch boy putting his finger in the hole in the dike to stop a leak while his sister ran to raise the alarm and to get help. And I think many Christians see our position in a similar way. There's the tide of humanism and secularism and paganism and it's threatening everything. And here we are with our all five fingers in the holes in the dike and the other five fingers, other holes in the dike and our knees and our toes and our shoulder and our elbow and we, we've just got all these cracks in the dike and we're just trying to hold the, uh, you know, waiting for the seventh cavalry rapture to rescue us from this disastrous situation. You know, the cracks are coming and uh, this whole ocean is about to come bursting through um, the, the dike. And so I think we should consider that the situation is actually the reverse. It's not our calling to hold back the tide of paganism. It's our duty to turn the tide of Christianity. Time and history and the power of God are on our side. It is the humanist thought police, their fact-checkers, who are frantically building dikes of online censorship to keep out the rising tide of Christianity, which they term against community standards. We are called to be the light of the world. Now, all the darkness cannot put out the smallest light. Even a small flickering candle can defeat the darkness. And that's why it was a symbol of the 70 at Jericho prayer march, that the Leipzig prayer meeting, they, they had candles. And the symbol was, not all of communism can put out the smallest candle. One Christian's witness is um, stronger than all the darkness of communism and, and the lies of, of atheism. And so, when you think of this principle, and then you, you look at Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, the first time I read this, I thought, you know, 70% of the world is covered by water. So we can expect the world to be 70% evangelized. But this doesn't say as the waters cover the earth. It says as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much of the sea is covered in water? Well, pretty much 100%. And so here we're reading in Habakkuk that the tide is on our side. The tide of the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the, the earth like the waters cover the sea now. And this is something that we must hold to. So the tide is on our side. History, time, the power of God, the word of God, the light of God is going to prevail. And all these pathetic attempts by Zuckerberg and others with their fact checkers to try and keep Christian stands out because it violates their community standards, whatever that means. Um, you can have child porn, that's fine. Um, in fact, that you just need to say, do you want to pr proceed or not? Child porn can be up there, but uh, they are quickly getting rid of Christians uh, 
uh, witness like this violates community standards. And every Facebook page I run, whether it's Africa Christian Action, Literature of Africa, Frontline, we're all being shadow banned and limited because they say it goes against community standards. And now the only thing we're posting on some of these sites is the gospel or pro-life in the case of Africa Christian Network. And how does this go against community standards? Well, I suppose it's against the cancel culture, against the globalist, secular, humanist, new world disorder, or the powers that should not be. So um, we need to look at these verses of the Bible again and see the Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land. Zephaniah 2.11. Or think of Zechariah 49. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be only one Lord and his name will be the only name. And he has granted us the keys of the kingdom. What we bind on earth will be bound. What we loose will be loosed. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us. Greater is he who is in us than him who is in the world. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We need to submit to God to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this is what the Great Commission calls us to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, Jesus said. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And this is what it means to pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we understand this, it becomes clear that in fact it's a paranoid atheist and humanist who are trying to plug up the cracks in their dikes as the rising tide of Christianity threatens to sweep away their filth, deceit, decadence, degeneracy, and the rebellion against Almighty God. What can we practically do to work for the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Well, when we stand for light, no, and not all the doctors can put up the smallest light. And the candle in the dark is a symbol of the Leipzig prayer meetings. And uh, let's see how decades of Bible smuggling, prayer and protest, and house meetings, and underground Christian witness and Christian radio programs uh, against the darkness under communism, um, it finally the flame of faith and freedom spread. And the Berlin Wall was breached, and the Iron Curtain collapsed. The Soviet Union was dismantled, and the light of the gospel of Christ triumphed over the darkness and deception of demonic communism. Now, one of the ways was by refusing to believe the lie. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, you don't need to, to necessarily protest against communism because said, obviously that could get you arrested. But he said, the way to bring down communism, he's speaking back in the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War, is to stop believing the lie. Stop believing the lie, stop repeating the lie, and stop applauding the lie. He said, I'm not even asking you to stand up and proclaim the truth. Just stop believing and proclaiming the lie. Stop repeating the lie. And refuse to let the, the lie advance through you, whether you are an artist, whether you're a musician, uh, a teacher, whatever your position in life, just refuse to cooperate with the lie. He said, communism and the whole state is built upon the lie. And when you refuse to applaud and repeat the lie, it will collapse. And in fact, that's how communism started to come down. Of course, others did it by evangelism and house churches and preaching and Bible distribution and gospel radio broadcasts. I mean, these were different ways that brought down the evil of communism. But we can work for the fulfillment of the Great Commission by having evangelistic tracts, supply, get a supply of gospel booklets like from Literature for Africa, we, are, we can supply with World Missionary Press Gospel Booklets. If you're in other parts of the country, we can put you in touch with other places like All Nations Gospel Publishers or some literature distributor near you. And in Pumalanga, there's Emmanuel Press. And there's great literature distribution sources all over the world. There's a lot that we have electronically that you can download free off our website. But 
if you want to get a good amount of litter, if you've got litter in your car, cubbyhole, uh, side panel, some tracks in your pocket, some in your purse, wallet, uh, in your um, a bag, and as you travel, you just give to people, whether it's at the petrol station, at the roadblock, at uh, the shop, um, customs agent, people in check-in counter for airlines, wherever you travel, just sowing good gospel seed in literature. The more we distribute gospel literature, the quicker we are fulfilling the Great Commission. And of course, having Bibles on hand for people that we know who need it. I've always got at least some New Testaments and Psalms in the car that I can, at short notice, quickly give someone or get out of my boot, um, if necessary, to make sure we've got literature to help fulfill the Great Commission. Of course, supporting our church, supporting our midweek Bible study and prayer meeting, that's important. Inviting people to church, inviting people to your home, evangelizing. And you don't even have to necessarily go and do door-to-door. That's good. I've done door-to-door evangelism. But sometimes they come to you. And when I've had Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door, I invite them in and I give them the gospel. Pray with them. Have them. They give me literature. I give them literature. You know, fair enough. And uh, so there's people that come to your door that you can evangelize too. You don't necessarily have to go that far out of your way to evangelize. Sometimes you might be part of an outreach where you go into distribution at a hospital casualty ward or uh, going to a children's hospital. You might go and distribute gospel literature in a school, um, do different ministry. There's a lot of things we can do, and we we know people who are who have a school ministry or a prison ministry, and, and that's wonderful and outstanding. But all of us, even if we don't have the confidence or the gifts or skills to do some of that sort of work, we can all distribute literature where we go or invite people to our different church activities and get into a lifestyle evangelism. Sometimes we've got to sit down um, with our doctor. Sometimes we and a hairdresser and there's opportunities for conversations to talk about what really matters and the future and hope and all of that. And we can use these opportunities, whether it's uh, going to um, a shop to buy shoes or whatever, um, our interaction, we're interacting with people continually, which gives us opportunities for evangelism. And of course, if we belong to a dynamic Bible-believing church, we should be involved in missions and outreaches anyway, midweek Bible studies, all of that uh, can help. But we can all do something positive to working for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and that gives hope for the future. Do you see um, any encouraging trends that give you additional hope? I would um, say so. I mean, just think of some of the encouraging cracks in the dikes. Like, in, edu- entertainment being such a major um, form of cultural transmission and cultural um, transformation. And so we know that the Marxists are trying to infiltrate and they've used Hollywood a lot to promote pessimism and ugliness and meaninglessness and chaos and, and promoting immorality and swearing and so on. Well, look at the cracks in the dikes. Successful films like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ or the C.S. Lewis Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, Prince Caspian, uh, Return the Drawn Treader and so on. Um, or Expelled, No Intelligence, a Loud Film. Or Roe v. Wade, Unplanned, Amazing Grace, the film in the victory of William Wilberforce against the slave trade. And then all the films from the Kendrick brothers, they've all been good. Flywheel, Facing the Giants, Fireproof, Courageous, War Room, Overcomer, Life Mark. And in South Africa, we've got Franz Crenier, who's produced films like Faith Like Potatoes, Hunsey, Born to Win, The Raw. These are putting cracks into dikes of humanism in Hollywood. And then there's Christian community radio stations breaking the secular humanist monopoly of the airwaves. And there's Christian magazines like Joy Magazine and Yoich break into what has been a secular humanist-dominated market in the magazine racks of shops and supermarkets. And there's online magazines like Devoted. There's desktop publishing. 
the World Wide Web, there's social media, opening avenues for mass communication, which was once reserved for media mongols and billionaires. There's a great spiritual hunger growing with tens of thousands of men turning out to mighty men's conferences and prayer rallies, even at Loftus Firstfelt and Newlands Cricket Stadium. Thousands of ministers and missionaries gathering at Kwasibantra Mission for the ministers' conference and thousands of young people participating in youth conferences at Kwasibantra Mission and KwaZulu. All of these are cracks in the dikes of atheism and secular humanism. And then there's the rise of Christian schooling and homeschooling and the growth of folks in the family and summit ministries and the establishment of the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter near Cincinnati. These represent seismic events that are putting big cracks in the dikes of humanism. And these are just a small foretaste of the coming spiritual tsunami. God is going to send a spiritual revival which will fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. So the dikes of humanism cannot stand. It is for us to be steadfast, immovable, faithful, diligent, energetic, for the kingdom of God. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. How do you respond to Christians who say we are in the last days? Well, I don't believe we're in the last days, but uh, just consider this. Uh, the book of Revelation, uh, which many people are quoting, say we're in the last days, it is not the, re it's not revelations, plural, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not a series of crystal ball revelations. Notice Revelation 1 verse 4 addressed to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Revelation 1, verse 11. To the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those are real first century Christians and actual churches in historic cities being addressed. And the first century Christians were meant to read and understand the message of Revelation as relevant to themselves. Revelation 1, 1. What must soon take place? Revelation 1, 3. The time is near. And Continually, Revelation 2, verse 16, I'm coming soon. Revelation 3, 11, I'm coming soon. And continually, Revelation 2, into things which must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. The time is near. Um, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. The time is near. And yet Daniel 12 was told to seal up these prophecies because the time is afar off when these will be fulfilled. Well, Daniel 12 was predicting things that would be fulfilled when Jesus came just a few hundred years later. And now we're meant to be taking this, which was written to people in the first century uh, world and told this is going to happen soon. And now people today are trying to suggest it meant nothing to the last 19 centuries of Christians and just affects us now in the 21st century. Well, that's not really biblically justifiable. Uh, plainly, you can see Christ's hearers understood his coming to be in judgment upon their generation. The generation that crucified Christ, the generation that rejected Christ, would have the time of Jacob's troubles. So the great tribulation came upon uh, the people of Israel uh, who rejected Christ. His blood be upon us and upon our children. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify Christ, release Barabbas. Those people, they received the punishment. And now Revelation 11 verse 8 says, their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, what city could that be called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified? Well, there's only one city where Christ was crucified, and that's Jerusalem. And so, plainly, the harlot referred to in Revelation is Jerusalem, and uh, the beast is Rome, the Roman Empire. And the woman rides a beast. Uh, the Jewish high priests were involved in an incestuous type relationship, so to speak, with the Roman government. They meant to represent God, Yahweh. Instead, they were standing for, for the Romans. And uh, you can see time and again, um, 
like Revelation 1.9, I, John, whom also your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that the book of Revelation is mostly written to first century Christians. Now, of course, everything in the Bible has relevance and application to us throughout all times, but it's not crystal ball revelation about the future as much as telling us about how Christ has been victorious throughout history. He's victorious over the very people who rejected him and crucified him, and he came back in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. And that was a lot of the fulfillments already happened. And you can see that um, Revelation 17 plainly identifies Rome and the Emperor Nero. And Rome sat in the seven hills. Nero was the sixth emperor of Rome. He reigned after the death of his five predecessors. He reigned before the brief rule of the seventh emperor. And plainly, Revelation, a lot of it's been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And Revelation 11 even speaks about the temple is still standing in Jerusalem when the book of Revelation was written. The, the temple is to be measured. And we see a fulfillment in Luke 21, uh, the fulfillment of the Jewish war with Rome, um, and a period of 42 months, which fits precisely the prophetic measurements in Revelation 11 verse 2, 42 months. And plainly, we're talking about a first century um, audience, first century emperor, first century Rome, and uh, yet today we've got many people trying to suggest that the last days in the future, but the book of Hebrews says, Christ has come in these last days. In the past, God spoke to the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken in through his son. On the day of Pentecost, the first sermon of the church by uh, the apostle Peter was, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. So, the last days happened back in the early days of the church. The last days of what? The last days of the Old Covenant, the last days of the Old Testament, the last days of the temple, the last days of the sacrificial system, the last days of the priesthood. And Jesus came in these last days. Now, of course, the Lord will come again at the very end of time, but the idea that we're living imminently any moment now Jesus could come, I don't believe that. There's so much prophecies to be fulfilled, including that this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world to witness to all mankind, then the end will come. Until we fulfill the Great Commission, we cannot expect the Lord to return. And there's a lot more work to be done. That's why our emphasis should be fulfilling the Great Commission, proclaiming the gospel to the whole world, evangelizing everyone on earth and discipling them. But when the Bible speaks about the last days, remember Hebrews 1 says Christ came in these last days. And Acts 2 says that this is what the prophet Joel spoke about, in these last days I will pour out my spirit. So, Pentecost was in the last days. We need to be uh, looking at uh, Scripture more carefully, more critically, to recognize that a lot of the sensational suggestions that we're living in the last days or the last hour are not really biblically justified. Most of the church history, Christians have understood that all of Scripture applies to all of life, and Revelation has been very popular for the persecuted church through all of ages. It's not because it's only of relevance to people in the 21st century. It's been relevant to people of all centuries. And the persecuted church has always found the book of Revelation a great encouragement because it reminds us of who Christ is and that he will ultimately be victorious against all his enemies. Mm. So the false and pessimistic interpretation of Revelation is uh, one of the tactics used to neutralize Christians. In many ways, I think so. I mean, I've heard people say, do you think Jesus is coming before the end of the year? And I'd say, no. So, well, I hope he does because I haven't studied for my exams. Now, how shallow and superficial is that? But 
we've got many things where people are praying for God to rapture them from their responsibilities. That's not particularly good. We need to not be obsessed with being raptured from our responsibilities on earth. We need to be energized um, and strengthened with a victorious vision of the Bible, not neutralized by defeatist view of the end times. Mm. Dr. Hammond, where can the audience learn more about the Bible teaching on the last days? Well, uh, there's some excellent books like Before Jerusalem Fell, Dating the Book of Revelation by Ken Gentry, and there's The Last Last Day's Madness by Gary DeMar. Uh, there's An Eschatology of Victory by J. Marcellus Kirk. Um, my favorite is The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray, Ban of Truth. All of these books are available from Christian Liberty Books, um, christianlibertybooks.co.za. Um, lots of great eschatology books, but Eschatology of Victory, Last Day's Madness, The Puritan Hope, and Before Jerusalem Fell, Dating the Book of Revelation. These are some of the most helpful books that I've read on the subject. Where can we learn more on how to fulfill the Great Commission and work for Reformation today? Well, Frontline Fellowship's got many uh, plans and projects uh, and resources on this. If you go into the Frontline Mission, sa.org website, you'll find a lot of resources on our previous Great Commission courses, audiovisuals, uh, presentations, PowerPoints, articles, sermon audio lectures, and so on. And uh, you'll find a whole program of, of on the Great Commission on the William Carey Bible Institute page, www.williamcareybi.org. And uh, in addition to that, you'll find lots on Reformation, the ReformationSA.org website. I would um, encourage one to plan to attend a future Great Commission course. But uh, there's some great materials such as the uh, Greatest Century of Missions book and the Great Commission Handbook, which is about to go for printing as soon as we get the funds for that. So there's some great projects. Literature for Africa um, can provide a lot of resources and materials. So visit the Frontline Mission SA.org website and go onto our Vimeo page, Sermon Audio page, and you'll find a lot of great resources that I think will help you. If you can get the book, The Greatest Century of Missions, there's nothing like examples of excellence to learn from some of the greatest missionaries of the 19th century uh, to get inspiration and example for our day today. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, for inspiring us uh, to have hope in the future and to clarify how the enemy is trying to sideline us. Uh, uh, let's uh, close by considering 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 57 to 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night.